Hey, y'all. Good morning. Well, the uh, New York City pastor, Tim Keller, puts it quite simply. You'll see this quote behind me as we start our time together today. He writes, Because the world is full of ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our soul with beauty. This simple quote points to two deep truths, and the first is one that we all know too well. The world is full of ugliness. War, systemic injustice, crushing poverty, mass shootings, one of which was in our own city just this past week. And then this week to watch the footage from two separate police body cams, one of the death of Tyra Nichols and the other of the attack on Paul Pelosi. This is a world full of ugliness. It's repulsive. It's gruesome. It's frightful. And even more, our lives in this world are full of ugliness. The ugliness isn't just out there to be watched at a distance through our browsers. We feel it. We experience it. It's in our family story. Just last night, my parents are in town, and my mom and I were cooking in the kitchen and talking about family history. And, and to find these stories beginning to come up and being dotted that might have been alluded to, but to finally name Things like abandonment or abuse of neglect, adultery, and sexual assault. To know, just to be the ugly, that that's not just alluded to, maybe not pointed at, but to know that that's part of the story of what got us here. It's an ugliness that is even felt within our community right now. Looking around the room and knowing that in this space right now, the joy of pregnancy is being dashed by fears of miscarriage. There is addiction and family interventions and rehab. There is job loss and the fear of an uncertain future. There is an ugliness out there that we carry in here with us. These are all connected parts of what the New Testament writer Paul called the kingdom of darkness. We live within a world that is a fallen, like we looked at last week, post-Garden of Eden world that stands in need of full redemption. And so as we await that or in the space outside of that, as Jesus himself said, you'll see behind me, you will have suffering in this world. Happy Jesus. <laughs> Notice the verb Jesus uses here, will have suffering. Trouble, suffering, sorrow, ugliness are inevitable parts of life in this world. Regardless of your personality, your decisions, your circumstances, you will have suffering. You will face the ugliness. And so here we are faced with this ugly world and then a haunting question on the other side of it. How can I thrive, let alone survive, in a world, in a life like this? Just a chapter earlier, Jesus also said in John 15, I have told you these things so that you may, excuse me, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Other translations have that your joy may be full or even that your joy may overflow. Jesus's will for you, whoever you are today, Jesus's will for you is abundant joy. Happiness and joy used interchangeably in the Bible is what God wants for you, what Jesus has for you, the sort of joy that fills your inner self to the brim and spills outward into your life, community, and world. That's what God wants for you. And so here's the problem that we face based between these two statements. Sorrow is inevitable in life, but abundant joy isn't. Pay attention to the verbs in Jesus' statements here. In John 16, Jesus says, Trouble, not may, will find you. With or without your permission, 
Suffering and sorrow will come. But John 15, Jesus says, joy isn't I have come so that you will have joy, but that you may, that you might. This abundant joy is a possibility that is impossible apart from Jesus, but still remains a possibility. And so more than just a feeling or a condition, what Jesus is inviting us in here to see is that joy is a consciously chosen way of living and thinking in a world of ugliness. For followers of him, the one who defeated death and believe will redeem the world, joy is not just something that we feel, it's a decision that we make, something we lean into. This is seen even in the language of the Bible, in the Greek Whenever you find this word joy, sometimes it's used as a noun to describe something that you feel. Other times it's an adjective to describe the character of a certain person. They're joyous. But just as regularly, joy shows up as a verb, to joy. It's a command. We translate it in the word rejoice. So rejoicing, that verb, that consciously chosen way of being, is how we enter into Jesus's abundant joy possibility. A consciously chosen way of thinking and living, what Richard Foster called the discipline of celebration. To bring us back to the opening line from Tim Keller, because the world is full of ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our soul with joy and beauty. Sabbath is one form of the discipline of celebration. It's one of God's delivery mechanisms for abundant joy in your life. It is his meal plan of delight for your soul. It's one of the most important practices for becoming people of overflowing joy as we not just survive an ugly world, but we confront it with the beauty of God each day as we walk out the door. So for today, to recap, there are four movements in Sabbath. They are stop, rest, delight, and worship. Up today is our third movement in delight. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31? Today, we're going to be looking at the movement of delight that I found to be the one that my soul needs the most. Yes, I need to stop. Yes, I need to rest. Who doesn't? But I know my personality is one that's predisposed to focusing on what's not good, to focusing on what's broken and what's ugly, often to the point of blind rage or broken paralysis. And so Sabbath delight has become an anchor and foundation for it. It has changed my, I cannot understand this enough. It has changed my life. It has shaped my personality in new ways that I did not think were possible. So with a, hopefully that doesn't put the, uh, the mark too high for today. But before we read the passage, just, just one more thing I want to say. I know that we just came from a heavy opening because I wanted to set up the, the, nece- the, the necessity of seeing that joy is serious business is the way that we could put it. But I I do, we're talking about delight today, and so I'm not gonna do that with a straight face, right? Like just everyone is gonna delight in the Lord and it's gonna be great. I want you to hear the invitation in the midst of the ugly world that we come out from, that this is what God is saying, not just that you need, but something that's actually and maybe counterintuitively incredibly life-giving and just downright fun. So we're going to pray in a moment, and I just want to invite you. We're going to take the ugliness that we're carrying from the past week, and we're just going to entrust it for God and just play in the space for a little bit today. Sound good? Okay. So once you find Genesis 1.31, join me in standing for the reading of the Scriptures today. And we do this each week as a way of just honoring the the Scriptures with our body. We're not reading the newspaper. We're not reading some devotional. We're reading what we believe to be inspired words of God. And so... Genesis 1.31. But first, like I said, let's just take a moment of prayer before we, we read. 
Holy Father, we gather into this little tiny space and uh, the amount of people in the room right now and the amount of stories of the ugliness that we've encountered, the suffering that we face, the troubles that we carry. Um, God, if we were just to sit down and name it all, it would just be too much to bear. But we believe you have very strong shoulders. And so Holy Spirit, we just entrust into your loving arms for this next bit, the ugliness of the world that we've gone through in our lives. And we ask you, would you speak your word to us so that your joy may be in us and that joy may be complete, overflowing. Guide us in delight today, our shepherd. Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then the morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've looked at already in the series so far, this word translated rested in English here is the Hebrew word Shabbat, where we get the word Sabbath. And it literally means to stop or rest but in 131, Genesis 131, just that preceding verse we added today, we get this connected idea where God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now, the word good in Hebrew is tov. I think tov is in the room with us right now in his little stroller hanging out in the back. In Hebrew, tov can be translated as beautiful, pleasing, or delightful. So that first Sabbath was not God needing a nap after six days of work. The first Sabbath day was not God's like, it's done, crash into exhaustion. That first Sabbath was rather the idea, more like what you and I feel when we come to the point of completion of a particular project. Maybe it's cleaning the house, cleaning your kid's bedroom, a work project, yard work for those of us that have those incredible unicorns of Los Angeles, <laughs> or maybe just a repair job around the house. But whatever it takes, the work gets done. It's clean, it's beautiful, it works as it should. And so you, you what? You settle on the couch and you just take it all in. Or you just stand in your kid's room, no toys and Legos or stuff on the floor, and you just cry with laughter. <laughs> you take in the smell of cut grass or the water line on your fridge that now the water goes into the cup instead of shooting against the back of the wall. A personal experience. Or just last week, uh, Pastor Isaac and Lorenz and I were hanging out one night uh, talking about and praying about most of you in the room, all of you in the room. But uh, on, on the way of le after leaving, uh, Isaac goes to unlock his car and, and the, the fob doesn't work. And of course, uh, his son stuck a stick in the keyhole, so the key doesn't work. So he's just, he's like, you're sleeping overnight, bud. Like, that's how it's going to go. But uh, Lorenzo and Isaac ran and got a new battery. And so here, you know, on my kitchen table, we've got it set up and tweezers to do the, you know, sweating work to put this new battery in. We put it in, crack it back together. We go outside and then Isaac takes it, hits the button and the lights, do it unlocks. <gasps> what is it? You stop, you exhale, you take it in, you savor the beauty. You look at the work and say, it's very good. The word is, you delight. You delight in the work that's done. So when we look at what God's doing up here in the first page of the Bible, on day six and into day seven, this is not his like, oh, it's finished, but the like, 
He's just, he's delighted. It's done. It's I'm taking it in. You look over your work and like God in Genesis, you bless it. You give it your full attention and delight. So Sabbath is a day of delight. Three ways we could break this down off the example of God in Genesis is first, Sabbath is a day, 24 hours to delight in God's world, to curate a view of the world with special attention on the good, the beautiful, and the true. This doesn't come through a denial or an ignorance of the ugliness of the world, but it comes as a consciously chosen decision to hone in on the beauty that's still here and to shape our imaginations for the redeemed and renewed world to come. The first thing we do is we delight in God's world. The second thing we do on Sabbath is we delight in your life in God's world. With so many of us having a propensity to pessimism or nitpicking or comparison and just not quite good enough, we take a day to delight in the good that saturates our lives and allow that goodness to refresh our souls. Psalm 103 is this incredible marathon of praise. You'll see it behind me. And just notice how it comes through. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And then listen, look at the ways, that the works that God does at details. Who forgives all your sins. He heals, he redeems, he crowns you with love. He works righteousness and dress, justice for all the oppressed. And before we go to verse five right here in the middle, what would you think goes in there? Like he, he creates, you know, everything or he sustains all of the, you know, the cosmos and quarks and, you know, black holes or he judges, you know, you know, whoever. What is it? Verse five, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Sabbath is a day to delight in the good things of your life as a gift from God and to allow God in them to renew your youth or your energy, your life the week ahead. Third, third, Sabbath is a day to delight in God himself, to delight in the access that we have through Jesus's resurrection and the coming of the spirit into the inner life of the Trinity, to relish the flow of love and joy and peace between the father, the son, and the spirit. Theologian Karl Barth reflected God's triune being, that God is father, son, and spirit, one God in three persons is at the very essence that God's being is radiant and what he radiates is joy. The loving intermingling of persons in a dance which pulses beauty of which Jesus's people have now been brought in to join. You see, if you have a God that's just the Trinity, it's, it's, it's incredible. How do we get to what 1 John says that God is love, that God in his nature and essence is love? Not that he loves as a verb, but that he is love. That statement is impossible without being in a community. A singular white beard, God by himself up in the heavens, whatever that would look like to you, cannot actually be love. He may love, but he can't in his nature be it. A God that is three, we're getting like philosophical here. Some of you are like glazed over and some of you are like scribbling like never before with your notes. But there's this incredible invitation that we have been brought in to join, that the God who is this dance of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we get brought up into. And Sabbath is our day just to be invited, to be reminded of the dance that we're already in. So this is an incredible invitation, but it's one that we have to learn because many of us just haven't been trained to relate to God this way. We've been taught what to believe him or what to believe about him how to obey him even. But like most of us, it's like, that's not something we grew up around was like learning how to delight in God. Few of us have tasted and seen just how incredibly God is, God, how good God is, as Psalm 34, eight says. 
Few of us have experienced uh, Psalm 1611, where it says, in your presence is abundant joy. Have you found that to be your primary experience when you come into a resting place of just being with God, that in your presence is joy? It's a step we have to learn. Few of us have been taught how to do it. And even few, fewer of us even have the capacity for this much delight. Dan Allender in his book, The Sabbath, which many of you are reading as we go through this series, he shares this insight. You'll see behind me. He says, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best days of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day that we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, watch creation in its fullness. And listen, few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it, to make it holy, because a day full of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone once a week. Sabbath is anything but a day of dreary religious duty. It's a 24-hour delight and joy fest where God pours good things and reminds us of good things all around us to revive our life as we go through a world of ugliness. So how do we enter this kind of delight? How do we enter this kind of Sabbath rest? So here's five practical. I had four last night and then I added a fifth. So four, so... There'll probably be a sixth by the time we're done. Four really practical thoughts, uh, five really th practical thoughts for this morning. Um, we're gonna have fun here. We're gonna play in the space, like I said. And um, I just, I wanna invite you to see Sabbath as a delight fest. And so we're gonna, that's what we're gonna do today, okay? All right. So first, to enter this kind of Sabbath delight will require you and I to slow down. Here's the reality. Nobody, nobody jogs in a museum. I'm like, hey man, we're going to the Getty. He's like, let me get my sneakers. He's like, comes in with the sweatband and the water bottle and he just bolts through. And it's like, did you go to the museum? Yeah, I went to the museum. No, you didn't. You ran through a museum. Nobody speed dates Van Gogh. Like it's that you don't go to the museum. It's like, okay, you got 30 seconds, you know, to like basically make an impression. Just like, okay, oh, and the next one. Like, what is it? We, we intrinsically know that beauty takes time. We know that hurry and joy are incompatible. That delight demands consideration, contemplation, and stillness. But this is so hard, especially for those of you who are like me, the more type A, impatient, to put it positively, tenacious people. We, we need to learn from Jesus here how to walk a slower pace for the sake of taking in the beauty all around us. And so for some of us, Sabbath is a day where we just, our practice is I'm going to try all day to literally walk slower. It's some of my favorite thing to get coffee with some of y'all and like, you don't know, but I'm tracking you. I'm like, do I, what do, what's the pace that they set when we walk? I'm looking for, there's a particular person in the room who's really good at, oh, there she is. Hi, Lily. Um, like Lily is just, it's, it's speed game. I didn't mean to shame you here. You guys all do it. You know it. I'm just picking on Lily so you guys feel better about yourselves. But just, I, so Sabbath being a day to literally just to notice, like I'm gonna try to walk at a slower pace to pay attention to what's going around me and even like what my body is feeling. We talked about in our uh, series on reading scripture about the practice of slow reading, Lectio Divina, a meditative reading of scripture. Sabbath is how you do that. You don't speed date the Bible. 
You don't speed read scripture, but to slow down, to chew, to take it in. I joked about going to the museum, but that's like a great way to slow down to the beauty in your life on Sabbath. Reading poetry, I'm still trying to get into that. Gardening, slow dining, single tasking. Golf, for some of you, definitely not me. I am at my least sanctified when, when it's like somebody puts a driver in my hand. I say things, I'm like, I don't know that was in there. But here's the whole point. There are all sorts of ways of having Sabbath be a day that you slow your body and your attention down and you take in the beauty that's around you. And to, to, to delight, you'll have to slow down. Second, to enter Sabbath delight, you'll, you'll need to put boundaries around the day. Delight is going to require us to say no to some things, to say yes to others. Marva Dawn, in her book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, it's a great little play, she says, we don't know how to feast because we don't know how to fast. What she means by this is we don't know how to savor every bite of food because a lot of us overeat all week long, of which I'm like totally guilty. It's, it's, what she's getting at is we don't know how to savor a good film because we binge TV every single night. What she means by this is we don't know how to savor our closest relationships because we're overcommitted and busy. As John Piper writes, the greatest enemy of hunger is not the banquet of the wicked, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. Many of us are like, and I got her permission to talk about this, my wife, when we go to so many different restaurants, whether it's chips and salsa, mint chutney and papadam, or like olive oil and bread and some balsamic. Like we sit down and by the time the main course is set, Erin's lost her appetite because she's already filled up. Now, Papa Dom and Mint Chutney are not bad. Yes and amen. They are so good, but they aren't the main course and they aren't meant to be. They're not going to be fully satisfying. They're not the nutrients that your body needs. Although, I mean, who could argue like butter chicken is like the healthiest thing for you. But here's just, here's the, the sad truth is for many of us, we spend our days full of distraction and then we find ourselves having little room for true deep delight. We binge on leisure and then find ourselves having no appetite for the actual deep rest our souls need. We inhale entertainment and then find ourselves just too stuffed out for the deep abiding joy that our lives need. Leonard Ravenhill, the English revivalist says, the devil's substitute for joy is entertainment. And like, I'm in hall, I'm like, so many of you work in the entertainment industry right now. And you're like, excuse me? Just, just notice, just notice, just take, take the statement as it is that there is a deep abiding joy that God holds out for us and most of us are content to take a substitute. We've got name brand rest and we're willing to take like Mr. Fizzle or whatever. It does not taste the same. It's nowhere near as good, but it's just the thing that's here. And so in order for us to Sabbath and enter into this delight, it's going to require us to take control over all of our days, to live with moderation so we have the room, time, capacity, and appetite for the delight that we actually most deeply need. Again, this is, you got six days of work and life in the world of ugliness and one day that's this invitation to feast on delight. And so that's the, this is my one day. I'm not going to waste this time. And so it requires boundaries, both during the week and on the Sabbath. And so there are other things that like what I can do on my other six days that can help make Sabbath something incredible. But a good starting place is simply just to make an I will and an I will not list for your Sabbath. 
just, just an I will and I will not. Like your own, so there's no like 10 commandments here. It's your own prayerful consideration. And so when we, my, our family first began practicing Sabbath, we printed out like a little Sabbath reasons and rules that went on our fridge. And so what we had was we will sleep in, relax, spend time in the scriptures, pray, eat our way through the day, Amen. Enjoy God's creation. Spend time with close friends and family. That's a great to-do list, right? It's like, I will sleep in. Check. I'm not, I just got out of bed and I already got one done. And then also, though, we said what? Because we want to lean into those things, we will not buy or sell except for food. We won't touch our email, calendars, or social media, run errands or catch up around the house, Talk about things that are heavy, sad, or divisive. There are six other days for that. We need to have this conversation totally, totally, babe, tomorrow. <laughs> or like, I, we need to have that conversation we're like, totally, totally, tomorrow. There's six other days. We don't even talk about the stuff that we need to do. We rest even from the thought of work. We don't read things or visit stores that make us want more. On Sabbath, we have enough. Some of this we talked about last week. So hear me, please. The goal here is not legalism of empty rules, but a life of freedom to truly enjoy the Sabbath. And so I want you, you invite you to encourage you to, to, to craft your own lists, not to have some strange uh, legalism, but just to have a sense of this is what this, I've got one day a week that this is what I do. These other things are not bad, but they're not for this day. And so as you consider your lists, you may find it tricky to discern what's a good fit for Sabbath or not. And so get a little more practical here. Try running any potential activities through the grid of stop, rest, delight, and worship. Let me tease this out. First, you've got an option before you, something that you could do on Sabbath. Just ask, is this stopping? Is this stopping what I normally do during the work week? For me, much of my work is with my mind, and so working with my hands, specifically tending, propagating, caring for the houseplants, is like, it's like one of my favorite things to do on Sabbath. Get dirt under my fingernails, I love it. Caring for houseplants is super restful for me. If you're a landscaper, it may not feel that way to you on Sabbath, right? Next is to go, is this resting? Is this reviving my body, soul, mind, and strength? When we first began Sabbath eight years ago, I would regularly give my Sabbath afternoons to playing video games. And I just reasoned that it's like, this is stopping and resting. Like, this is it, right? But over time, what I discerned is it was filling my time, but it wasn't filling my soul. And so Mario Kart as a family, though, that's another story. Like, that is, that is totally another story. Um, the third is, is this delighting? I'm going to talk about this more in a second. And then fourth, is it worship? We'll talk about this more next week, but does this connect me more deeply to God? And you just think through it. I will, I won't. Oh, what's this thing? Do we want to do this? Is it stopping? No, okay. Is it stopping? Well, yeah, but is it restful? No, okay, you know, you just make your way through. Hopefully that's super helpful for you. So the whole point is the lists aren't bound, or aren't, excuse me, aren't burdens, but boundaries. Setting up a right uh, limits around beauty and joy and life with God. And it's not that the things that we say no to are inherently wrong, like papadam or chips and salsa, but that just simply, we have six other days for those things. We have six other days for those things. This is my one day a week to stop, rest, delight, and worship. And I, I'm, I'm going to, for myself, understand and know what are those things for me and lean headlong into them. This is my one day for it. Third, to enter Sabbath delight will require being in community. Though it's wise for us to give time on the Sabbath to solitude and prayer, that's actually going to be part of the exercise next week. There's an assumption that largely is kind of a carryover from our individualistic age that has snuck into our idea of Sabbath, that it's like a day to be alone, just like you in like, like an empty apartment by yourself with nothing but a Bible, right? 
and you're like, mmm, so filling to my soul. The joy of the Lord is overflowing. It's, it's, it's nothing could be further from the truth. Just, just realize, if we're talking about delight, delight is a shared emotion. Joy is a shared emotion. I know this because I'll watch, I'll watch stand-up comedy on Netflix on the couch by myself. I chuckle at best. <laughs> That's something. But then I'm sitting there watching it. My parents, are, we, were in town, we were watching a stand-up bit on Netflix last night together. And like we're all rolling together on the couch because we're, there's something about joy. It multiplies when it's shared. And it actually subtracts when it's alone. And so I'll get a little bit practical on this for a bit. But for now, suffice to say, Sabbath delight, it, just, it, it requires you being in community. You can't do it alone. So next, to enter Sabbath delight will require you to become like a child. To enter Sabbath delight will require you to become like a child. In the middle of one of his teachings, Matthew records Jesus calling, you'll see behind me, a small child and had, had the little dude stand right here in front of the crowd. And Jesus points to him and says, truly I tell you, unless you turn, repent is the word, and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus were physically here, like I wasn't preaching today, and Jesus came in and was like, I got Q&A time on Sabbath. What do you guys want to know? We're like, all right, Jesus, you know, we're asking all these questions. And one of our first questions was just like, hey, how do we enter delight and rest on the Sabbath? Jesus would likely smile, step off the stage, usher us all out into the kids area and go, exhibit A. Take in their delight, take in their joy. Notice their humility, their simplicity, their trust, their vulnerability, their curiosity, even when they're fighting and hitting. At least they're not hiding anything. At least they're honest. You see, for Jesus, children are an on-ramp into life in the kingdom. They are an example of the life that he's calling us to, and rest is totally a part of that. Sabbath is absolutely a part of that. But the sad reality that I've found within myself and in our church is an unfortunate carryover from our culture. This is speaking specifically to the parents for a little bit in the room. Many of us live with a chronic annoyance of our children. We complain, we whine, we mutter curses under our breath. This was, not only have we, we've all seen it in one another as parents, but we've also just, I noticed this. And one of the primary questions that I got out of this series was, how do I Sabbath as a parent? And as I kind of probed the question, what I found was the underlying assumption is that children are not an on-ramp to Sabbath. They're an obstacle. That they're not the image of the life that we were made for. They're an inhibitor to the life that I want. But Jesus, what does he say right here? What is he saying? If you become like a child. How do you become like little children? You learn to walk with them. You learn to live around their needs and expectations. You, you orient your life around little kids and they, they will teach you how to be like them just fine. Jesus would say, children don't hamper Sabbath, they help. And it's not just Jesus. Psalm 127 says, it's useless to rise early and go to bed late. And work your worried fingers down to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? And then he says, don't you see that children are God's best gift? The fruit of the womb, his generous present. 
Psalm 127 has caused head scratching for generations because it's such a left field out of nowhere turn. It challenges our lack of rest. Don't you know God enjoys giving rest? But then parallels that question with, don't you see children as God's best gift? What's going on here? Children are not an obstacle to rest. They are God's gifted on-ramp. And so as I look over my life, I begin to like shake at this because this doesn't feel like my experience. But when I stop and really start probing around what's going on within the heart of Ryan, I find the root of my frustration with my kids is not that they get in the way of Sabbath, rest, and delight, but rather they get in the way of the opposite. They disrupt my selfishness, my unhealthy work rhythms, my hurried pace, my distracted scrolling or streaming. And just by being, they pull me out of the orbit of I and back into a deeper world of wonder, mystery, forgiveness, and love. And our response so often is to resent them for it. Michael Chabon, he's a Pulitzer, Nebula, Hugo Award-winning American novelist. He's also a screenwriter, columnist. He opened his memoir, Pops, with a pertinent word. And you can replace the word books with whatever work you do. If none of my books turn out to be among that bright remnant, because I allowed my children to steal my time, narrow my compass, and curtail my freedom, I'm all right with that. Once they're done, my books, unlike my children, hold no wonder for me. No mystery resides in them. Unlike my children, my books are cruelly unforgiving of my weaknesses, failings, and flaws of character. And most of all, my books, unlike my children, do not love me back. Children, steal your time, narrow your compass, curtail your freedom. Each child is a limitation on their parents. And in our age, we receive this as a curse. But Jesus, Psalm 127, God himself would say, to that curtailing of your freedom, to that narrowing of your compass and the stealing of your time. Yes, my blessing, my best gift to you. Parents in the room, what, what if you and I, what if we received the limitations of our kids as blessings, as God gifted on-ramps for us to stop and rest? What if we received our children's simplicity as an on-ramp to delight and we're reading the same book again what if we took their sick days as an invitation that God was just giving us an okay to slow down for a day? What if instead of training them to disengage from the world and what they're feeling with screens, like we do as adults, together we learned how to engage the world in what we're feeling? What if their needs, their fits, and their fights that required your intervention were received as moments for you to, like God, speak peace over chaos, bring healing restoration, and for you to worship God as you see an image of him in yourself? What if their slowness forced us to slow down rather than we just keep trying to make them speed up? What if their ongoing questions were God's invitation to regain a sense of wonder and curiosity? What if instead of believing we needed to rest from our kids, we began to believe that what we needed most was to learn to rest with them and through them? As I make my way through the life of ugliness that we all go through, and, and so often I get a front row seat as a pastor to many of you, I, I normally, very regular on weekdays, finish up with work, and I come home exhausted and tired, and I feel like the ugliness waiting on my shoulders. And I open up the front door, and as I walk in, I am greeted by being tackled by joy and delight. 
I am literally dragged into having to entrust all of it to God to stop, rest, delight, and play. And it is not just, in, in, it is God in the form of these two little kids that are doing it, dragging me away into delight and away from, from to go back to Jesus's quote, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven from being so, taking myself so damned seriously. And I mean that literally. This is, this is the invitation, parents. And I know for some of you are like, I don't have any kids and I don't know if I do now. <laughs> like, Check with me. So just let's, I just let's detail this. Like, some of you may ask, okay, well, Ryan, what about solitude? What about just a time to return to being more than a parent? I just, absolutely, I just want to hold this challenge in front of us. And so with this in mind, just one practical idea for your Sabbath. Every week or even every other week, divide your Sabbath into thirds. One altogether, one for mom outings or solitude, and one for dad solitude time or outings. For some of you in the room, I know this will probably require some planning with others to help in the lack or the absence of a spouse's partnership. But the whole idea would be, in the time all of you together, receive your kids as an on-ramp to delight and rest. And when you swap, don't view it as one parent who babysits to earn their turn. Rather, for the one that's staying, you're the one that's actually, you've got the, you've got the good deal here. It's the chance for you to keep entering Sabbath delight because you're now getting your own little personal masterclass session on how to become like a child in the way of Jesus. So please do not hear any of this as a shaming tone. I'm working through this for myself or that you should never get sitters or have a date night or feel bad for needing a break or even a weekend away. Like, that is not my intent here. All I'm asking us to consider is maybe we followed our anti-Sabbath culture into an anti-children posture. And here's the reality. Seasons change. Though parenting is not easy, it's not forever. One of the most helpful little breath prayers for me in parenting, not just on the Sabbath, but all of my life has been, it's just a season. I exhale, this too shall pass. And then I inhale, so God help me redeem this time. Not just to say it's just a season, not just to say this too will pass, but to add, God help me redeem this time. Emma, will not be six forever. Arlo will not be two eternally. Diapers aren't forever. Breastfeeding will come to an end. Legos on the floor and Play-Doh in the rug, these two shall pass. Bedtimes will fade. One day, one day, I'll have a finally clean and quiet home, but an empty one. But today, there are life-altering blessings in my presence, my words, and my play I can give my kids. And in this season, there are life-altering, rest-inviting, delight-creating blessings they can give me. And that's the stuff that really matters. The moments that you and I, parent, we're gonna crave decades from now because they're gone. And you and I would be a fool to waste them because of TikTok, because of Netflix, because of your career, Unnecessary work hours, you fill in the blank. So become like a child. Parents, dress, play, make fart jokes. Yes and amen, you heard that in church. <laughs> Before getting coffee, act like a giant rooster and repeatedly check your, peck your kids on the head, cluck your way on top of the kitchen table and bolster a crow to start the Sabbath. Some of you are like, that's oddly specific that happened yesterday. <laughs> 
I just, I just want to give this invitation. One, I know this speaks particularly to parents. And so for those of you here that are single or married without kids, I want to encourage you to spend time with the families of collective and not in the sense of like, hey, so-and-so's coming over, so I'm out of here. Like maybe, but, I, but for you to enter into and find that invitation of Jesus to become like a child, for you to join the dance party, for you to play on the floor, for you to dance and climb jungle gyms and learn how to become a kid for us to learn how to delight from Jesus' deputized kingdom coaches to discover that rest comes in the form of what he calls God's best gift in Psalm 127, which is our children. So finally, it will require you to give yourself to joy. Rabbi Reb Zalman, I love the name, recommends before beginning Sabbath, you say, today I'm going to pamper my soul. For those of you new to Sabbath, a great question to ask yourself to shape the practice is, what could I do for the next 24 hours that would bring me deep, visceral pleasure and joy in God? Psychologists have a great label for when you save up a bunch of your favorite experiences for a single moment, whether your birthday, your anniversary, or vacation. It's called pleasure stacking. The Sabbath is a day for pleasure stacking. So, here we go. This is what it looks like in, in my season of life. And I know this is one just because I like talking about what we do on Sabbath. It makes me happy. But just a detail like for you, okay, get an imagination of what this could look like for you. So we sleep in on Saturday morning. We wake up with coffee and the same Sabbath morning playlist that we've made that we've been playing, maybe adding one song to for the past five years here and there. Aaron, most weeks, Erin cooks pancakes. She sets the table with chocolate chips, whipped cream, almond butter, bananas, strawberry, blueberry compote, coconut strips, and sausage. All while I'm on the floor playing with puzzles, Legos, or Star Wars action figures on the floor with the kids. Yes. May the force be with you. We then gather around the breakfast table. We talk, we laugh, we joke, and then we move into book time. Aaron settles on the couch, me in my favorite chair, and we read scripture, a devotional, some other Christian book. We pray while the kids might read their own books or play in their room or outside. But half of the time in this season of life, this means they want to snuggle, crawl over us, and play. So what do we do? We try, emphasis on try, to receive that gift of love, gather what we can from Scripture, say a quick prayer, and then we get into play. Or, or we say, okay, Aaron, I, I, coming out of the week, I need just a couple, can I, just a couple minutes to like, you know, get Jesus time before I, you know, enter into this. After the book time, we might walk to the park with bikes and scooters, stopping to look at nature or getting coffee, or we load up the car for the day. We go to the beach, we drive through Topanga, we go to a museum. Sooner or later, we end up home, we nap, we read fiction, science fiction novels, or just fiction novels. Um, we're trying to get Aaron into science fiction. Um, we FaceTime family members. I tend to my house plants. We'll meet up with friends. We go on play dates at Emma's school. Aaron may take the kids while I meet up with friends at LA Aleworks, or we may build a fellow, uh, pillow fort while Aaron grabs time with her friends or discipleship group. Like, who, who doesn't want to do that? We just pamper our souls. So just consider, in your season of life, how can you pleasure stack on Sabbath? Community, gratitude, play, being intimate with your spouse, exercise, creativity, playing music, playing pickleball, nature, all of it is fodder to beautify your soul. The arts, museums, music, live music, dancing, documentaries that lift your spirit, loud belly laughter, long walks, picnics, flowers, sweets, time with family, friends, watching the sunset. It's just, there's, there's, it's, it's, the list is infinite. I literally a few years ago started a note on my phone called Sabbath Ideas. And just whenever I'm like going throughout the day and I'm like, oh, we should do 
that, I go and just type it up. And then now we just have like a list that we pull from as we talk about what do you want to do for Sabbath? I know all of this may sound strange because some of us have grown up in a stream of Christianity where you might have grown up just around a different view of what it means to be in this world. But this sort of dedication to delighting in the goodness of God and in his world is part of the legacy of the church. And it's also the basis for coffee culture as we know it. Tish Harrison Warren writes, the church has a reputation for being anti-pleasure. Many characterize Christians in general the way H.L. Mencken wryly described Puritans as people with a haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. <laughs> so good. In reality, the church has led the way in the art of enjoyment and pleasure. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington points out that it was the church, not Starbucks, that created coffee culture. Coffee was first invented by Ethiopian monks. The term cappuccino refers to the shade of brown used for the habit or the cloak of the capuchin monks of Italy. Coffee is born out of extravagance, an extravagant God who formed an extravagant people who formed a craft out of the pleasures of roasted beans and frothed milk. Yes and amen? So in other words, Sabbath is a day, like the Keurig goes in the closet on, sun, on Sunday, you know, on Saturday. It's a day for good coffee. But it's, all, it's a day for us to enter delight. I, I hope that's what you're saying. That you're like, this is what God not just is invite commands me. This is one of the 10 commandments. Yes, this is one of the 10 commandments, a day to enter delight. Uh, one of the best ways, time-tested ways to do this is through the Sabbath meal. So in a traditional Jewish Sabbath, this is on Friday night. In a common Christian home, it's on Sunday afternoon after church and both are great. So in our home, we Sabbath on Friday night into Saturdays. And so every Friday night is our Sabbath meal. It's our family plus regularly some members of our collective family. We begin our Sabbath together. We clean the house. We blast good music. We turn off and put our phones, iPad, and TV remotes in a box in the closet. We set the table, light the candles, pour the wine, crack open a beer, or concoct a cocktail. We pray a prayer, read a short scripture. We take a moment to pause entrust our week to the Lord and receive the gift of Sabbath. And then we feast. Whether grilled pizzas or boxes of coop pizza and palms with Frank's red hot sauce and ranch because my wife is Southern. <laughs> or Aaron will build like a charcuterie tray of snacks as I put the finishing touches on a dish I've prepared. And often there's all, we've got like mac and cheese or buttered noodles that's just there for the kids. They can take whatever they want, but this is here. On Sabbath, we don't fight over what to eat. The parents said yes and Amen. As we eat, we go around the table. We share our highlight of the week, what we're looking forward to for the next 24 hours. We bless our children and we bless one another, either there at the dinner table or snuggled up all together in Arlo's bed at bedtime where we just look over our kids and we, we just celebrate who we see you becoming, who you are to us, how much you mean to us. And then normally it's, it's turned into we'll get like a blessing back from them. Like that's not part of it, but I'm loving it. Because Emma will sometimes have something or she won't have anything. And Arlo's is always like, Arlo, do you have a blessing for, like, you want to bless mom? Yeah, poop. Like, it's like, sweet, there's our two-year-old. Like, we're ready to go. But when we do it at the dinner table, we, after finishing the meal, we move to dessert with extra large helpings. And we just delight in the smiles and chocolate mess. After the meals, the kids blow out the candles like it's their birthday. Almost every week with a moment of terror as Arlo leans just a little too close. We take all those dishes and just throw them in the sink to be left until tomorrow. 
We play games, we dance, we play hide and seek, we wrestle with tickle spiders and tickle rockets. We put the kids to bed and we either crash with them for the night or we wiggle our way out to the fire pit and we catch up with one another for a little bit before we head to bed and put into practice what the rabbis commanded every married couple do on Sabbath. I wrote this, I wrote this before I remembered that my mom was gonna be here today. And I just remembered that. So Sabbath is a weekly celebration of goodness and beauty. So most weeks, most weeks, most weeks, most weeks, most weeks, that dinner is the highlight, not just of my Sabbath, of my whole week. And it's this fire of God's delight and reminder of the goodness in my life that I carry with me through the other six days. Because we all just talked about this. This world is ugly. How do, you, how do you withstand that ugliness and move with compassion and joy and love and grace through the Spirit meeting the needs of a city and not be overwhelmed by it? You need to have a one day a week reminder of the beauty and goodness of God, of your life, and who you are to Him that becomes the like fuel in the fire for burning like that. And so it... it it's the day that I, I, I warm myself af, af in, the, in the afterglow. I warm myself in it. And then I anticipate in the days leading up. It's this beauty that carries me through the ugliness. Something really good has to beat it out. So like this weekend is, was a great example of where it was different than normal. We got in and out on the way home from school. We still did the candles and prayer and gratitude. And then we all loaded up in the car to go to Bluey's uh, Great Big Play, this like live show. And if you want a mainline delight, you just get in an auditorium with like a thousand toddlers in their favorite cartoon show. And you're just like, oh! Aaron and I are crying and we don't know why. We're just like, I love this little dog and her family. So here's the thing. This sort of delight is both God's invitation. And remember, one of the 10 commandments, one of the 10 commandments, God says, what my people need to survive in a world that's awaiting its redemption is this day that uh, Abraham, Joshua Heschel, the rabbi said that Sabbath is the day when eternity becomes a day. When we get this deep inhale of new creation life, even in the midst of the ugliness of this world, and it just, it moves us through. It renews our strength like the eagles, like that Psalm said. Now here's the reality. Of course, sadness is going to come. Like you, you can practice this and it's, it, you will still have sadness that will come. The reality is we're in a world awaiting its final redemption. We're still plunged into ugliness and the Sabbath will come in seasons of life that are full of sadness. Or other times because of a hard season, overwork or overactivity during the past six weeks, Sabbath comes and we just crash around the table. And often as we get into Sabbath, we have the space, the quiet to breathe, and the feelings we've been running from all week long finally catch up to us. And now the phone that we used to distract ourselves is locked conveniently in the closet. All of this is what John Mark Comer of Practicing the Way calls Sabbath sadness. And his recommendation is don't fight Sabbath sadness. Don't let it discourage you as if Sabbath is broken or you aren't doing it right, but simply let it pass over you like a wave. Jesus' desire isn't for you to bypass your pain or to get stuck in it, but to go through it and in time to come out on the other side. You see, delight is not a denial of the pain and ugliness of this world. It's determination to move through it courageously, honestly, patiently, in hope and into overflowing joy. And so this is why Sabbath comes every seven days to remind us of the goodness of our life with God every week in all the seasons of life, including the ones that don't feel very good. 
It's interesting that unlike the other practices of Jesus, Sabbath is the one that gets set by God. You may pick your daily time for prayer or a weekly day for fasting or the pastors and staff. We set, we have our worship gathering is Sundays at 10 a.m. God sets, God schedules the Sabbath, six days of work and one day of rest. He brings it at the end of good weeks and lousy ones. When we finished everything on our to-do list and when we're woefully behind, when all is well and when our life and work are falling apart. And all of it is to remind you and I, it's okay that we're not okay. In those dark seasons when prayers feel like they're going unanswered, when our dreams feel like they're over, when we feel God's absence more than his presence, the Sabbath comes, and even in the midst of all of that, an invitation to peace, to trust in God, to see the beauty despite the ugliness, to have our souls revived for a mission and our lives in a world of ugliness. Again, as Keller said, because the world is full of ugly things, Not only do we need the Sabbath, but God in his graciousness has given it to us so that we might feed our soul with beauty and so that we, in turn, might feed this world with the overflow of the beauty that we find. Teaching us to delight and even be happy in all seasons of life, or as Paul said, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So this is the invitation of Jesus to come, find rest for your souls, follow that six-in-one rhythm of work and rest. There's a time to work, sweat, fast, lament. There's a time to stop, rest, feast, and delight. And so as we move into the coming week, we have two really simple and really fun exercises to add to your remembering observing. For the sake of time, we'll go pretty quickly through these today. The first is to plan a Sabbath feast. Ideally, you do this with your family, your discipleship group, or folks from your neighborhood region. I mean, going back to Lorenzo's announcement, what if we had regions that didn't just serve together, they Sabbath together? So whether that's 20 people in a cookout or one to do close friends and you go out to dinner, plan a meal. Cook, order your favorite food, make sure there's dessert. If you drink wine, you're saving the best bottle. If there's kids, just a big bowl of buttered noodles. Practice hospitality. If you have a home or apartment host, if you know how to cook, use those skills. If you know people who don't have community or family nearby, which is honestly in LA, most of us, bring them in. Reach across the lines that divide our city. Socioeconomics, race, politics. So many of us just eat with people that look and think and are like us. What if Sabbath was a touch point week where we brought in people that didn't? You see, Jesus' dream is not just for our church, but our dining room tables to look as diverse and beautiful as the kingdom of God, where every tribe, tongue, and nation is on display. You can do this whether folks are beginning Sabbath at night or ending it or Sunday gathering. But once you have everybody around the table, follow the basic Sabbath feast ritual. This is detailed in the companion guide. Um, And so again, take some, all of, you can do all of this, just go through or make it your own. But follow this basic kind of time to make that meal be the official start of that Sabbath time or ending for others. Second, after that Sabbath feast is consider pleasure stacking. Make a list of activities that cause you delight and joy and plan to do one to three of them on your Sabbath. The companion guide has a list of 20 ideas to get you started, but you can take that or make up your own whatever you want to do. Again, all of this is in the companion guide. And so that's at collectivechurch.com slash current series underneath the exercises for the Sabbath heading. In it, you'll also find our reach exercises. So you may continue in Dan Allender's book on the Sabbath. You may listen to the supplementary episode of the Rule of Life podcast, or you may try implementing the Sabbath box into your practice. Very simple. Find a decent sized box before Sabbath, 
put anything that would get in the way of rest and delight in the box. And no, you can't put your kids in there. We just talked about this. Your phone, laptop, iPad, car keys, wallet, whatever it may be. Take a moment, ideally with your Sabbath meal and family and friends. Write out any anxieties, sorrows, or unfinished tasks from the previous week on little scraps of paper. You put them in the box too. You say a brief prayer, give it all over to God, and then you just, you check the box in the closet. It's like, nope, God's got it. And whenever you think about that thing, you think about the box in the closet and like, God's, God's got it. You can do one, two, three, none of these reach exercises. They're merely supplements for you as you're, as you're stepping into this. And again, as with the past weeks, between your Sabbath and next discipleship group gathering, please do the Sabbath reflection. We don't change from our experiences. We change as we reflect on them. And so please reflect together as you discuss the weekly Bible passage and plan for the next week's exercise, which is gonna be fun. Your task for discipleship, for part of discipleship group this week is to plan a party. Come on, it's gonna be fun. Okay, and also again, if you're not in a discipleship group, QR code on the chair back in front of you is how to do that. But now, deep breath, we need to move into a time of response. And so I just wanna close with an invitation from God in Isaiah 58 from Eugene Peterson's The Message. He writes, if you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as celebration. If you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. Let's pray.